0: SECTION 1 OF THE LIVES OF THE QUEENS OF ENGLAND, VOLUME 7. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. THE LIVES OF THE QUEENS OF ENGLAND, VOLUME 7, BY AGNES AND ELIZABETH STRICKLAND. ELIZABETH, CHAPTER 9, PART 1. The unjust detention of Mary, Queen of Scots, in an English prison, had for fifteen years, proved a source of personal misery to Elizabeth, and a perpetual incentive to crime. The worst passions of the human heart, jealousy, hatred, and revenge, were kept in a constant state of excitement by the confederacies that were formed in her dominions, in behalf of the captive heiress of the crown. Her ministers pursued a systematic course, of espionage and treachery in order to discover the friends of the unfortunate mary and when discovered omitted no means however base by which they might be brought under the penalty of treason the sacrifice of human life was appalling the violation of all moral and divine restrictions of conscience more melancholy still scaffolds streamed with blood the pestilential jails were crowded with victims the greater portion of whom died of fever or famine, unpitied and unrecorded, save in the annals of private families. Among the features of this agitating period was the circumstance of persons of disordered intellects accusing themselves of designs against the life of their sovereign, and denouncing others as their accomplices. Such was the case with regard to Somerville, an insane Catholic gentleman, who attacked two persons with a drawn sword, and declared that he would murder every Protestant in England, and the Queen, as their head. Somerville had, unfortunately, married the daughter of Edward Arden, a high-spirited gentleman of ancient descent in Warwickshire, and a kinsman of Shakespeare's mother. Arden had incurred the deadly malice of Leicester, not only for refusing to wear his livery, like the neighboring squires, to swell his pomp during Queen Elizabeth's visit to Kenilworth, but chiefly, says Dugdale, for galling him by certain strong expressions, touching his private addresses to the Countess of Essex before she was his wife. These offenses had been duly noted down for vengeance, and the unfortunate turn which the madness of the lunatic son-in-law had taken formed a ready pretext for the arrest of Arden, his wife, daughters, sister, and a missionary priest named Hall arden and hall were subjected to the torture and hall admitted that arden had once been heard to wish that the queen were in heaven this was sufficient to procure the condemnation and execution of arden somerville was found strangled in his cell at newgate hall and the ladies were pardoned as the insanity of somerville was notorious it was generally considered that arden fell a victim to the malice of leicester who parceled out his lands among his dependents. But while plots, real and pretended, threatening the life of the queen, agitated the public mind from day to day, it had become customary for groups of the populace to throw themselves on their knees in the dirt by the wayside, whenever she rode out, and pray for her preservation, invoking blessings on her head, and confusion to the papist with the utmost power of their voices a scene of this kind once interrupted an important political dialogue the maiden queen held with the ambassador mavisier as he rode by her side from hampton court to london in november fifteen eighty three she was in the act of discussing the plots of the jesuits when says mavisier just at this moment many people in large companies met her by the way and kneeling on the ground with divers sorts of prayers wished her a thousand blessings, and that the evil disposed, who meant to harm her, might be discovered, and punished as they deserved. She frequently stopped to thank them, for the affection they manifested for her. She and I being alone, amidst her retinue, mounted on goodly horses, she observed to me, that she saw clearly that she was not disliked by all. It is not very difficult to perceive, by the dry manner of ma Vissier that he deemed this scene was got up for the purpose indeed such public displays of fervency are by no means in unison with the english national character the parsimony of elizabeth in all affairs of state policy where a certain expenditure was required often embarrassed her ministers and traversed the arrangements they had made or were desirous of making in her name with foreign princes walsingham was on one occasion so greatly annoyed by her majesty's teasing minuteness and provoking interference in regard to money matters that he took the liberty of penning a long letter of remonstrance to her amounting to an absolute lecture on the subject sometimes says he when your majesty doth behold in what doubtful terms you stand with foreign princes then do you wish with great affection that opportunities offered had not been slipped but when they are offered to you if they be accompanied with charges they are altogether neglected common experience teacheth that it is as hard in a politic body to prevent any mischief without charges as in a natural body diseased to cure the same without pain Remember, I humbly beseech your majesty, the respective charges hath lost Scotland, and I would to God, I had no cause to think, that it might put your highness in peril of the loss of England. I see it, and they stick not to say it, that the only cause that maketh them here, in France, not to weigh your majesty's friendship, is, that they see your majesty deathfly charges, otherwise than by doing them underhand. It is strange, considering in what state your majesty standeth, that in all directions they have here received, we have special charge not to yield anything that may be accompanied with charges. The general league must be without any certain charges, the particular league with a voluntary and no certain charge, as also that which is to be attempted in favor of Don Antonio. The best is that if they were, as they were not, inclined to deal in any of these points, then they were like to receive but small comfort, for anything that we have direction to assent unto. Heretofore, your majesty's predecessors, in matters of peril, did never look into charges, though their treasure was neither so great as your majesty's is, nor their subjects so wealthy, nor so willing to contribute. A person that is diseased, if he look only upon the medicine, without regard of the pain he sustaineth, cannot in reason and nature, but abhor the same if therefore, no peril, why then tis it vain to be at charges, if there be peril? It is hard that charges should be preferred before peril. I pray God that the abatement of the charges toward that nobleman, that hath the custody of the bosom serpent, meaning Mary, Queen of Scots, hath not lessened his care in keeping of her. To think that in a man of his birth and quality, after twelve years travail, in charge of such weight, to have an abatement of allowance, and no recompense otherwise made should not breed discontentment no man that hath reason can so judge and therefore to have so special a charge committed to a person discontented everybody seeth it standeth no way with policy what dangerous effects this loose keeping hath used the taking away of morton the alienation of the king james of scotland and a general revolt in religion intended or caused only by her charges doth show and therefore nothing being done to help the same is a manifest argument that the peril that is like to grow thereby is so fatal as it can by no means be prevented if this sparing and improvident course be still held the mischiefs approaching being so apparent as they are i conclude therefore having spoken in the heat of duty without offense to your majesty that no one that serveth in the place of a counsellor that either weigheth his own credit or carrieth that sound affection to your majesty as he ought to do that would not wish himself in the furthest part of ethiopia rather than enjoy the fairest palace in england the lord therefore direct your Majesty's heart to take the way of counsel that may be most for your safety and honor september second f walsingham there is no date of place or year to this very curious letter, but the allusions render it apparent that it was written in France, just after the attempt made on Elizabeth and her council at home, to curtail the allowance of 52 pounds per week, which had been, in the first instance, granted to the Earl of Shrewsbury, for the board and maintenance of the captive Queen of Scots and her household, 230. Even this stinted sum was sorely grudged by Elizabeth, the earl complained of being a great loser and pinched the table of his luckless charge in so niggardly a fashion that a serious complaint was made to queen elizabeth by the french ambassador of the badness and meanness of the diet provided for mary elizabeth wrote a severe reprimand to shrewsbury and he who was rendered by the jealousy of his wife the most miserable of men petitioned to be released from the odious office that had been thrust upon him of jailer to the fair ill-fated scottish queen after a long delay his resignation was accepted but he had to give up his gloomy castle of Tutbury for a prison for mary no other house in england it was presumed being so thoroughly distasteful to the royal captive as an abiding place walsingham's term of bosom serpent appears peculiarly infelicitous as applied to mary stuart who was never admitted to elizabeth's presence or vouchsafe the courtesies due to a royal lady and a guest but when crippled with chronic maladies was denied the trifling indulgence of a coach or an additional servant to carry her in a chair the arrest and execution of morton in scotland was peculiarly displeasing to elizabeth and embarrassing to her counsel walsingham boldly reproaches his royal mistress in the above letter with having lost this valuable political tool by not having offered a sufficient bribe for the preservation of his life mavisier in a letter to his own court gives an amusing detail of an altercation which was carried on between elizabeth and the archbishop of st andrews on account of the execution of morton in which she vituperated the queen of scots and the young king james and in the midst of her choler exclaimed I am more afraid of making a fault in my Latin than of the kings of Spain, France and Scotland, the whole house of Guise, and their confederates. Elizabeth stood on no ceremony with the envoys of Scotland, who scrupled to sell their fealty for English gold. In the previous year, when James had dispatched his favorite minister, the Duke of Lennox, with a letter and message to her, explanatory of the late events in Scotland, she at first refused to see him. And when she was at last induced to grant him an interview she according to the phrase of calderwood the historian of the kirk rattled him up on the subject of his political conduct but he replied with so much mildness and politeness that her wrath was subdued and she parted from him courteously the revolution by which lennox and his colleague stuart earl of Arran had emancipated their youthful sovereign from the degrading tutelage in which he had been kept by his father's murderers and his mother's foes had also broken elizabeth's ascendency in the scottish court a counter influence even that of the captive mary stuart was just then predominant there Davison, elizabeth's ambassador to scotland assured walsingham that the scottish queen from the guarded recesses of her prison guided both king and nobles as she pleased the young king was now marriageable and his mother's intense desire for him to marry with a princess of spain was well known if such an alliance were once accomplished it might be suspected that the english catholics assured of aid both from scotland and spain would no longer endure the severity of penal laws and the injustice to which they were subjected by a queen whose doubtful legitimacy might afford a convenient pretext to the malcontent party for her deposition. The Jesuits, undismayed by tortures and death, arrayed their talents, their courage and subtlety against Elizabeth with quiet determination, and plots and rumors of plots against her life and government thickened round her. The details of these would require a folio volume. The most important in these effects was that in which the two Throckmortons, Francis and George, were implicated with Charles Paget, in a correspondence with Morgan, an exiled Catholic, employed in the Queen of Scots service abroad. Francis Throckmorton endured the rack thrice, with unflinching constancy, but when, with bruised and distorted limbs, he was led for a fourth examination to that terrible machine, he was observed to tremble the nervous system had been wholly disarranged and in the weakness of exhausted nature he made admissions which appeared to implicate mendoza the spanish ambassador as the author of a plot for dethroning queen elizabeth mendoza indignantly denied the charge when called upon to answer it before the privy council and retorted upon burleigh the injury that had been done to his sovereign by the detention of the treasure of the genoese vessels he was, however, ordered to quit England without delay. Lord Paget and Charles Arundel fled to France, where they set forth a statement that they had retired beyond seas, not from a consciousness of guilt, but to avoid the effects of Leicester's malice. Lord Paget was brother to one of the persons accused. Throckmorton retracted on the scaffold all that had been wrung from his reluctant lips by the terrors of the rack the capture of crichton the scotch jesuit and the seizure of his papers which he had vainly endeavoured to destroy by throwing them into the sea when he found the vessel in which he had taken his passage pursued by the queen's ships brought to light an important mass of evidence connected with the projected invasion of england and elizabeth perceived that a third of her subjects were ready to raise the standard of revolt in the name of mary stuart at this momentous crisis the treachery of the king of scotland's mercenary envoy arthur grey by putting elizabeth in possession of the secrets of his own court and the plans of the captive queen enabled her to countermine the operations of her foes she outmanoeuvred king james and as usual bribed his cabinet she first duped and then crushed mary and laid the rod of her vengeance with such unsparing severity on her catholic subjects that the more timorous fled, as the reformers had done in the reign of her sister, to seek liberty of conscience, as impoverished exiles in foreign lands. It was not, however, every one who was so fortunate as to escape. Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, brother to the unfortunate Earl Thomas, who had been beheaded, for his share in the northern rebellion, was sent to the tower, on pretext of having implicated himself in the Throckmorton plot, shelley an acquaintance of his having admitted something to this effect in a confession extorted by the rack after having been detained more than a year in close confinement without being brought to trial the earl was found one morning dead in his bed with three slugs lodged in his heart his keeper had been superseded the night before by a servant of sir christopher hatton therefore suspicions were entertained that he had been murdered but the jury brought in a verdict of fellow deceit it having been deposed that he had been heard to swear with an awful oath that the queen whom he irreverently designated by a name only proper to a female of the canine race should not have his estates and therefore to avert the consequences which would result from an act of attainer being passed upon him he had obtained a pistol through the intervention of a friend and shot himself in his bed a more lingering tragedy was the doom of philip howard earl of arundel the eldest son of the beheaded duke of norfolk this young nobleman had been educated in the protestant faith and was married in his fifteenth year to one of the co heiresses of the ancient family of dacre her he at first neglected intoxicated as it appears by the seductive pleasures of the court and the flattering attentions which the queen lavished upon him it had even been whispered among the courtiers that if he had not been a married man he might have aspired to the hand of his sovereign meantime his deserted wife in the seclusion of the country became a convert to the doctrines of the church of rome probably through the persuasions of her husband's grandfather FitzAlan, earl of arundel as her change of creed took place during his life on the death of that nobleman philip howard claimed to succeed him in his honours and estates his claims were admitted and he took his place in the house of lords as earl of arundel and premier peer of england for there were then no dukes his father having been the last man who bore that dignity in elizabeth's reign the malignant influences that had destroyed norfolk pursued his son they were in fact similar characters possessing many amiable qualities but devoid of moral courage and manly decision the prophetic malediction which was denounced against reuben unstable as water thou shalt not excel appears peculiarly applicable to both these unfortunate howards they were of a temperament too soft and timid for the times and the very excess of caution which they exercised, to avoid committing themselves, either personally or politically, was the cause of exciting a greater degree of suspicion, in the mind of their wary and observant sovereign, than would probably have been the result of a more manly line of conduct. Norfolk had been the dupe and the victim of men, who had taken advantage of his vacillating disposition, to beguile him into overt acts of treason, and then hunted him to the scaffold arundel with naturally virtuous and refined inclinations had been led by the contagious influence of evil companions into a career of sinful folly which impaired his fortune deprived him of the respect of his friends and excited the contempt of his enemies the repeated slights that were put upon him rendered him at length aware of the light in which he was regarded in that false flattering court and in the mingled bitterness of self-reproach and resentment, he retired to Arundel Castle. There he became, for the first time, sensible of the virtues and endearing qualities of his neglected wife, and endeavored, by every mark of tender attention, to atone for his past faults. The queen took umbrage at Arundel's withdrawing from court. Notwithstanding the caresses, she had lavished upon him, she regarded him with distrust, as the son of the beheaded Norfolk. The nature of her feelings toward the family of that unfortunate nobleman had been betrayed as early as two years after his execution, on the occasion of his sister, the Lady Berkeley, kneeling to solicit some favor at her hand. No, no, my Lady Berkeley, exclaimed Her Majesty, turning hastily away. We know you will never love us for your brother's death. Yet Elizabeth amused herself by coquetting with the disinherited heir of Norfolk, till his reconciliation with his deserted countess provoked her into unequivocal manifestations of hostility, and confirmed the general remark that no married man could hope to retain her favour if he lived on terms of affection with his wife. The first indications of her displeasure fell on the weaker vessel. Lady Arundel was presented, for recusancy, and confined under the royal warrant, to the house of Sir William Shirley, for twelve months. Arundel was deeply offended at the persecution of his lady, and the deprivation of her society, of which he had learned the value, too late. He was himself, at heart, a convert to the same faith, which she openly professed, and being much importuned by the friends of the Queen of Scots, to enter into the various confederacies, formed in her favor, he determined to avoid further damage by quitting England. His secretary Mumford had already engaged a passage for him in a vessel that was to sail from Hull, when he was informed that it was her majesty's intention to honor him with a visit at Arundel House. Elizabeth came, was magnificently entertained, behaved graciously, and carried her dissimulation so far as to speak in terms of commendation of her host, to the french ambassador mavisier de castenot who was present she praised the earl of arundel much for his good nature says that statesman but when she took her leave of him she thanked him for his hospitality and in return bade him consider himself a prisoner in his own house his brother lord william howard and munford his secretary were arrested at the same time they were subjected to very rigorous examinations, and Mumford was threatened with the rack. Nothing was, however, elicited that could furnish grounds for proceeding against any of the parties, and after a short imprisonment, they were set at liberty. Arundel, after this, attempted once more to leave England, and had actually embarked and set sail from the coast of Sussex. The vessel was chased at sea by two of the Queen's ships, he was taken brought back and lodged in the tower previous to his departure he had written a pathetic letter to elizabeth complaining of the adverse fortune which had now for several generations pursued his house his father and grandfather having perished on a scaffold without just cause his great-grandfather having also suffered a tainer and condemnation at the block from which he only escaped as it were by miracle and the same evil fortunes appearing to pursue him he saw no other means of escaping the snares of his powerful enemies and enjoying liberty of conscience than leaving the realm his life he said had been narrowly sought during his late imprisonment and as her majesty had shown on how slight grounds she had been led into a suspicious hard opinion of his ancestors and that the late attack upon himself having proved how little his innocence availed for his protection he had decided on withdrawing himself trusting that she would not visit him with her displeasure for doing so without her license for that he should consider the bitterest of all his misfortunes this letter was to have been presented to the queen by arundel's sister lady margaret sackville but she and lord william howard were placed under arrest almost simultaneously with himself the confinement of arundel was rigorous to the extreme and embittered with every circumstance of aggravation that persons of narrow minds but great malignity could devise at the time of his arrest lady arundel was on the eve of becoming a mother she brought forth a fair son and sent to gladden her captive lord with the tidings of her safety and the accomplishment of his earnest desire for the birth of an heir but lest he should take comfort at the news he was allowed to remain in suspense many months, and was then falsely informed that his lady had borne another daughter. Lady Arundel was treated with great cruelty. All her goods were seized in the queen's name, and they left nothing but the beds on which she and the two servants that now constituted her sole retinue lay, and these were only lent as a great favor. After Elizabeth had despoiled and desolated Arundel house, she came there one day in the absence of its sorrowing mistress and espying a sentence written by her with a diamond on a pane of glass in one of the windows expressing a hope of better fortunes she answered it cruelly by inscribing under it another sentence indicative of anger and disdain arundel remained unnoticed in prison for upwards of a twelvemonth and was then fined ten thousand pounds by a star-chamber sentence for having attempted to quit the realm without leave. He was also condemned to suffer imprisonment during Her Majesty's pleasure. Nothing less than a lifelong term of misery satisfied the vengeances of Elizabeth. While these severities were exercised on the devoted representative of the once powerful House of Norfolk, the famous associations for the protection of Queen Elizabeth against popish conspirators was devised by Leicester all who subscribed it bound themselves to prosecute to the death or as far as they were able all who should attempt anything against the queen elizabeth who was naturally much gratified at the enthusiasm with which the majority of her subjects hastened to enrol themselves as her voluntary protectors imagined that the queen of scots would be proportionately mortified and depressed at an institution which proved how little she had to hope from the disaffection of englishmen to their reigning sovereign her majesty writes walsingham to sadler could well like that this association were shown to the queen your charge upon some apt occasion and that there were good regard hath both unto her her countenance and speech after the perusing thereof mary stuart disappointed the prying malignity of the parties by whom she was exposed to this inquisitorial test by her frank and generous approval of the association and astonished them by offering to subscribe it herself. The new parliament, which had been summoned of necessity, the last having been dissolved after the unprecedented duration of 11 years, converted the bond of this association into a statute which provided that any person by or for whom rebellion should be excited or the queen's life attacked might be tried by commission under the great seal and adjudged to capital punishment. And if the queen's life should be taken away, then any person by and for whom such act was committed should be capitally punished, and the issue of such person cut off from the succession of the crown. It is unnecessary, observes the great civilian, Sir James Mackintosh, with reference to this act. To point out the monstrous hardship of making the Queen of Scots a prisoner in the hands of Elizabeth, responsible for acts done for her, or in her name. Such, however, was the object of the statute, which was intended to prepare the way for the judicial murder of the heiress presumptive to the throne, and also for the exclusion of her son from this succession. This clause, Sir James McIntosh affirms, was ascribed to Leicester, who had views for himself or his brother-in-law, Huntington, the representative of the House of Clarence elizabeth was at this juncture on terms of conventional civility with henry the third of france sir edward stafford her ambassador in a letter from paris detailing the dangerous illness of that prince informs her good grace in his postscript of a present that was in preparation for her there is says he the fairest caroche almost ready to be sent your majesty that ever i saw it must needs be well in the end the king hath changed the workmanship of it so often and never is contented not thinking it good enough henry however continued to advocate the cause of his unfortunate sister-in-law mary stuart and his ambassadors made perpetual intercessions in her favour to elizabeth who generally received these representations with a stormy burst of anger and disdain Henry was too much paralyzed by internal commotions and foreign foes, to resent the contempt with which his remonstrances were treated by his haughty neighbor, far less was he able to contend with her for the dominion of the low countries. Elizabeth possessed the power, but prudently declined the name of sovereign of those states, though the deputies on their knees again offered her that title after the death of the Duke of Anjou she sent however a considerable military force to their aid under the command of her quondam favourite the earl of leicester if we may credit the private letters of the french ambassador mavisier to mary queen of scots this appointment was intended by elizabeth and the predominant party in her cabinet as a sort of honourable banishment for leicester whom they all were desirous of getting out of the way according to the same authority christopher blount though a catholic, was sent out by the queen as a spy on Leicester. Leicester was received with signal honors by the states, but instead of conducting himself with the moderation which his difficult position required, he assumed the airs of regalty, and sent for his countess, with intent to hold a court that should rival that of England in splendor. It was told Her Majesty, writes one of Leicester's kinsmen, to his absent patron, that my lady was prepared to come over presently to your excellency, with such a train of ladies and gentlemen, and such rich coaches, litters, and side-saddles, that her majesty had none such, and that there should be such a court of ladies and gentlemen, as should far surpass her majesty's court here. This information did not a little stir her majesty to extreme choler, at all the vain doings there, saying with great oaths, that she would have no more courts under her obeisance but her own, and would revoke you from thence with all speed. This letter confirms the report of Mavissier, who in one of his intercepted confidential communications with the captive Queen of Scots, observes, The Earl of Leicester takes great authority in Flanders, not without exciting the jealousy of the Queen. She will neither allow him supplies of money, nor permit his wife to come out to him. I will let the upstart know exclaimed the last and proudest of the tudor sovereigns in the first fierce explosion of her jealousy and disdain how easily the hand which has exalted him can beat him down to the dust under the impetus of these feelings she penned the following scornful letter which she dispatched to him by her vice-chamberlain who was also charged with a verbal rating on the subject of his offences doubtless well worth the hearing if we may judge from the sample of the letter how contemptuously you have carried yourself towards us you shall understand by this messenger whom we send to you for that purpose we little thought that one whom we had raised out of the dust and prosecuted with such singular favor above all others would with so great contempt have slighted and broken our commands in a matter of so great consequence and so highly concerning us and our honor whereof though you have but small regard contrary to what you ought by your allegiance yet think not that we are so careless of repairing it that we can bury so great an injury in silence and oblivion we therefore command you that all excuse set apart you do forthwith upon your allegiance which you owe to us whatsoever hennage, our vice-chamberlain, shall make known to you in our name, upon pain of further peril. She also wrote to the states, that, as to their disgrace, and without her knowledge, they had conferred the absolute government of the confederate states upon Leicester, her subject, though she had refused it herself, she now required them to eject Leicester from the office they had unadvisedly conferred upon him. The states returned a submissive answer, and Leicester expressed the deepest contrition for having been so unfortunate as to incur her displeasure. At first, she preserved great show of resentment, threatened to recall and punish him, and rated Burleigh for endeavouring to excuse him. Burleigh on this tendered his resignation. Elizabeth called him a presumptuous fellow, but the next morning her colour abated. She had vented her displeasure in empty words, and her counsel induced her to sanction the measure of sending supplies of men and money to Leicester. Soon after this reconciliation was effected, Elizabeth began to speak of Leicester in her wanted terms of partial regard, so much so that even his hated rival, Sir Walter Raleigh, in a postscript to a courteous letter addressed by him to the absent favourite, says... The queen is in very good terms with you, and thanks be to God, well pacified, and you are again her sweet robin. Bitterly jealous, however, was sweet robin of the graceful and adroit young courtier, whom he suspected of having superseded him in the favor of his royal mistress, by whom, indeed, Raleigh appears at that time to have been very partially regarded wit genius and valour in him were united with a fine person and a certain degree of audacity which qualified him admirably to make his way with a princess of elizabeth's temper he was the younger son of a country gentleman of small fortune but good descent but the great cause of his favourable reception at court in the first instance may be traced to his family connection with elizabeth's old governess kate ashley that woman who from her earliest years exercised the most remarkable influence over the mind of her royal pupil was aunt to raleigh's half-brother sir humphrey gilbert the celebrated navigator the young adventurous raleigh was not likely to lose the advantage of her powerful patronage which had been openly bestowed on humphrey who through her influence obtained considerable preferment and an important command in ireland it was in that devoted isle that Raleigh first distinguished himself by his military talents, and unhappily sullied his laurels with many acts of cold-blooded cruelty, the details of which belong to the history of Elizabeth's reign. On his return to England, he commenced the business of a courtier, and affected great bravery in his attire, and being gifted by nature, with a fine presence and handsome person, he contrived at the expense probably of some privation and much ingenuity to vie with the gayest of the bereft and embroidered gallants who fluttered like a swarm of glittering insects around the maiden queen one day a heavy shower having fallen before her majesty went out to take her daily walk attended by her ladies and officers of state the royal progress which cannot always be confined to paths of pleasantness was impeded by a miry slough elizabeth dainty and luxurious in all her habits paused as if debating within herself how she might best avoid the filing of her feet raleigh who had on that eventful day donned a handsome new plush cloak in the purchase of which he had probably invested his last testoon perceiving the queen's hesitation stripped it hastily from his shoulders and with gallantry worthy of the age of chivalry spread it reverentially on the ground before her majesty whereon says our author the queen trod gently over rewarding him afterwards with many suits for his so free and seasonable tender of so fair a footcloth soon after this auspicious introduction to the royal favour raleigh was standing in a window-recess and observing the queen's eye was upon him he wrote the following sentence with the point of a diamond on one of the panes fain would i climb but that i fear to fall with a very different spirit from that in which she had answered the pathetic aspiration inscribed by the sorrowful countess of arundel in the window of her desolated house did elizabeth condescend to encourage her handsome poet courtier by writing with her own hand an oracular line of advice under his sentence furnishing thereby a halting rhyme to a couplet which he would probably have finished with greater regard to melody if thy heart fail thee do not climb at all raleigh took the hint and certainly no climber was ever bolder or more successful in his ascent to fame and fortune if anything were to be given away he lost no time in soliciting it of the queen to the infinite displeasure of his jealous compeers. "'When will you cease to be a beggar, Raleigh?' said the queen to him one day, apparently a little wearied of his greedy importunity. "'When, madam, you cease to be a benefactress?' was the graceful reply of the accomplished courtier. Elizabeth did not always reward services, but compliments were rarely offered to her in vain so considerable was the influence of raleigh with his partial sovereign at one time that tarleton the comedian who had probably received his cue from burleigh or his son-in-law oxford ventured during the performance of his part in a play which he was acting before her majesty to point out at the reigning favourite while pronouncing these words see the knave commands the queen for which he was corrected by a frown from her majesty if Raleigh could have been contented to remain a bachelor, he would probably have superseded all the rival candidates for the smiles of his royal mistress. End of section one